What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Consciousness Explorers podcast, the pod that's all about trying on different practices, going where we haven't gone before with meditation and movement and today, non-dual practice. So I am your host, one of them anyways, Tasha Schumann, and with me is my co-host and friend, Jeff Warren. Hello, everybody. So today's episode is a whole new level of meditation nerdery for us. It's <laughs> a topic and a practice that Jeff and I really, really love and are excited to share with you. But we want to give you a little bit of context before we start because it can be new for people. Yeah. So I feel like, the, yeah, we should do a little framing ahead of time. Our guest is Angelo DeLillo, who is a medical doctor and the author of a book called Awake, It's Your Turn. Now... Most of the time on the Consciousness Explorers podcast, we have on a guide who implements a technique and they're trying to move you in a particular direction and maybe you're trying to build up some quality and the idea is that you're trying to get somewhere in the future. This is a little bit different. Angelo is trying to show you something that's here actually right now, a kind of spontaneous just happening beingness that is you could say, a more fundamental part of who we are, more fundamental than our basic identity structures. And the way he does this is basically he describes in real time his own experience because Angelo is someone for whom, whether I think it was in his 20s or maybe his early 30s, he kind of shifted into this place and he's been there ever since. It's continually deepened for him. And this is this place, by the way, is the place that is talked about endlessly in contemplative circles. It's whether you want to call it awakening or self-realized or enlightened. That's the place that he comes from. And he's trying to show you how you are also, you have this part of your experience alive as well. And it's kind of confounding. So my, my advice is just let the words wash over you. This isn't something for your intellect. It's like something that your own intuition can kind of grope and flutter around and, and just see how it lands. I do want to say that we get pretty nerdy afterwards. Like it's kind of an opportunity for Tasha and I to ask questions we don't maybe ordinarily get to ask. So I would say, again, the same thing for that. Just let the words flow through you. See what things come up. I love this episode. So come along for this ride. Come experience the open, aware nature of the present moment of your consciousness. Have fun. Let's do it. Welcome, Angelo. We're so excited to have you today and to try out some non-dual practice with you. Thank you for having me. Well, we usually start this out with just inviting you to say a little bit about yourself and the practice you're interested in guiding and then you know, anything you think the listener needs to know. Sure. Yeah. So my name is Angelo, uh, Angelo DiLulo. I wrote a book called uh, Wake, It's Your Turn, which describes a very profound shift or series of shifts in identity or the way I experienced reality that happened many years ago in 1997. And in the book, I give some pointers and descriptions of how someone who's interested in experiencing that shift themselves can go about it. The book is generally oriented to the first big shift in identity that tends to occur. This uh, shift is a shift from 
being in a place where we feel like we're a self inside a body walking around in a world of separate objects. That self needs to find ways to defend itself. It needs to manipulate the outside world, situations, people, etc., to make itself feel better because it fundamentally feels a sense of lack and isolation, which I would say most people probably spend most of their time in. I certainly did before the shift. The shift is from that to a very fundamental, pure knowing of a being or a beingness that permeates everything. And within that, these movements and storylines of who I am, where I'm going, where I came from, are seen to be just subtle fluctuations in consciousness. They don't define who or what you are. They don't define what reality is. In fact, you, in some sense, lose an interest in defining any of that because you realize it's all just movement of mind. But the pure being nature, uh, the pure unbound consciousness that is the experience of just being alive is undeniable and always there, always present. And and this is a very uh, profound and fundamental shift in experience for anyone who's gone through it. And from here, you begin to investigate the fabric of reality itself, of what the seeming external world is actually made of in very direct experience, not in a conceptual way. Uh, So this book really orients mostly to that first shift, but there are a lot of pointers to later movements of realization. So that's a general background about what I do, what the book I wrote is about, and the meditations that I often will guide people through. So the other thing I like to say before I begin a guided meditation is I'm not trying to teach you anything. I'm not trying to give you any kind of knowledge. Because if I did that, I would just be adding to the, the knowledge base. What I'm really doing is pointing to what's already there. It's already in your experience. It's always in your experience. It's never not been in your experience. And yet somehow the mind kind of leapfrogs over it frequently. It tends to overlook it. And in fact, it can even overlook it by looking for it, which is very strange. But it's what happens in spiritual uh, thought, spiritual communities, etc. So what I'm really pointing to is not something that you need to find a tendency we have when hearing these kinds of messages sometimes is like, it almost hits that FOMO button, fear of missing out. Like, I I haven't gotten that yet. I, I just can't wait till I get that. I promise you, I promise anyone listening, it's already there. And so when you hear that and let that sink and digest it a little bit, then you can relax a bit. Uh, meaning it sort of takes that seeking mind off the hot seat that part of yourself that feels like it needs to arrange everything internally and externally to make you feel better, you can just give it a rest. It's it's okay. It's just the working of our mind. It's totally normal. You can have compassion toward it, but you can also tell it you don't really have to do anything here. You know, you you spend the day very busy, so take a rest and let's look at what else is going on. And that's really what I'm pointing to is just a sort of warmth toward the experience of being you at the most fundamental level. So it's not about, this isn't about anyone else. This isn't about any spiritual principle. It's not. It's not about some guy that lived 2,500 years ago. It's about the intimate experience of being you right now. So yeah, those are the general orientations that can dial you in a little bit to what we're doing. Again, it doesn't matter if you use a technique to meditate. It doesn't matter what technique you use. This is compatible with any of it because I'm not pointing to 
a pathway. I'm not pointing to a technique or a strategy or an agenda even. What I'm pointing to is where all of those techniques and agendas and pathways that have been elucidated by people who have realized before, I'm pointing to what those lead to, which strangely is right back where you started, but in a holistic way that doesn't leave anything out. It includes every part of you, every part of your life, every part of your heart and soul and mind. What an awesome invitation. Seriously, it's so interesting (laughs) because somehow in the way you set up that invitation, I have nothing to say. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What can you even say about that? I'm just like already in that feeling, that space you're talking about or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's an opportunity to enjoy yourself. This doesn't mean enjoy something external, which is sometimes what we mean when we say enjoy yourself. It means literally enjoy yourself. You enjoy being what you are in the most simple way where you don't have to be anything for anyone. You just be the beingness of you right now. And that's what we're pointing to. This is the perfect way to sit and start practice for the day. We'll put in a little bell sound or kind of delineator. The people know this is practice time. You can lead us in that. Okay. So when we begin to meditate, it can be helpful to begin by just noticing what's calling our attention right now. Maybe some thoughts. We may have some thoughts or visual images in the mind stirring about what we were doing five minutes ago, this morning, yesterday. There may be images or even narratives of a recent challenge we've had, difficult situation or conversation. There may not be, but when we take inventory of the movement of mind and thought, the contents, uh, we're just letting that be. We don't have to throw it out. We don't have to reject it or label it. It's not right or wrong. It's simply what's happening in the mind. We approach all experience with an even hand, with an even noticing, meaning we're not looking to assign value. It's not good or bad. We don't have to decide whether it should be here or should not be here. When we approach in this way, we might notice there's a subtle space between what shouldn't be here and what should be here. When we let this mechanism of deciding and what to throw in and what to throw out, rest, then we find a sort of neutrality. It's almost like a little giggle, something sweet, unexpected.
and we can orient to this. We can let this orient to us. This isn't a doing. It's an inhabiting of this part of experience that we often overlook because we're in the business of picking and choosing. This is a good thought. This is a bad thought. This is a good experience. This is a bad experience. That all has its place, maybe. But when we just set that down, something opens. A certain wonder. A wonder that doesn't need an answer doesn't need to rest or land anywhere. We sort of fall in love with just this experience, this being, this knowing of unknowing. This is where a certain kind of magical receptivity opens itself. It's a receptivity that's always in contact. It doesn't have to reach out to experience because of every experience is already this. The receptivity and the experience aren't two. We notice this in sound, whether it's the voice, the ambient sound in the room. You might even notice a ring in the ears. And as that sound clarifies, we notice the receptivity is the sound. There's not a receiver of sound apart. There is only sound. Sound moves exactly how it moves. It evolves exactly how it evolves. It's in time for the mind, and it's not in time for itself. This is eternity, where no time has ever tread. The sound, every sound, The listening is in the sound. The listening is the sound. Now, if the mind calls attention here, calls your attention to the mind, could be a thought saying, this is peaceful. Could be a thought saying, I don't understand. 
or this doesn't make sense with what I've learned about sound or hearing. Then we notice that thought stuff, that movement of thought is similar in that the receiver of it is not separate from it. The sense of being a thinker and the thought, the narratives, even the visual images in the mind are not two. If a thought says, how do I find my true home? How do I find pure being? The thought itself, the sense of being the thinker of that thought are already home. We let that substance of thought that we'll call consciousness show us how it moves naturally, flows, ebbs, dissolves, reforms. The receptivity is the thought. It's the substance. It's the movie on the internal screen and it's the internal screen which has no content and it can accommodate any content. Absolute stillness accommodating any movement. So when things get very quiet, still, whether it's the soundscape, the sensation cloud of the body, consciousness, or all of those intermixed, interpenetrated, we realize there's nothing specific to do. This is reality meditating itself. Being, being itself. Nothing more, nothing less. You can be every part of this at once. You are already every part, every iteration, every time and place. And you don't have to discover that. You don't have to remind yourself. 
it's already right here. Yeah. Well, that's uh <laughs> that's one way to interrupt linear time. <laughs> you know, conversational <laughs> agendas out the window. Hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Jeff, do you want to start? Oh, I can do it. It's so refreshing. You know, so much of what we do on this podcast is a technique. I'm going to give you an instruction. I'm going to point you in this direction. There's an implicit or explicit hope that you'll get a kind of insight or experience. And what's so different about certain non-dual approaches to teaching to reality however you want to talk about it and certainly with angelo is like it's just all of a sudden he's just describing his experience in a very open sort of relatable way i'm not getting an instruction because that's not the intention i'm just hearing about reality actually as it is for me right now so immediately I go into this different receptive space and, you know, I'd come in and out of your words, but at a certain point they didn't really matter. It was just, I was in this very familiar space of just sort of being in a kind of not knowing, knowing. And then certain phrases would really land and it would be like a permission to let myself be more where I am, as I am. Yeah. And I have some questions about that because... There's this paradox here where I know I don't need to be anywhere else but here. There is nowhere to go. It's being here. And yet, one of the experiences I had reading your book was a reignition of excitement around 
the recognition that there's always further to go in a sense, even though you're also, you're right here, there's also a deeper understanding that's available. And I could see through the reading of the book, how I had been in a kind of cul-de-sac in a way for a few years in the sense that I had got to the point in my practice where I kind of knew myself to be awareness. And I had a certain ability to not identify with the energies that were coming through. But I kind of just was like, oh, because of all the non-dual teachings I have imbibed, just gone, oh yeah, I guess this is all there is. But there was also a kind of identification as me as awareness. So there was an identification happening and it was like, and that kind of meant that I wasn't progressing into deeper insights. So this is something I'm keen to ask you about because I think you have a term for this in this sort of being, the kind of knowing, not knowing this, you call it boundless consciousness. And, you know, as a, someone who teaches meditation, it's sort of a place where I set people up often. It's like a developmental thing. Like I go here and I trust that just being here will erode things in time. And they do. And there are ways to erode things more deliberately by implementing specific kinds of direct path, self-inquiry. And so then that's kind of a paradox. So I guess I kind of wanted to ask you about that, but that, that's plenty long as a report. Yeah. So you point to something that's really important. And that is that with this process, let's call it this spiritual unfolding or the realization process, if I could describe what it is that happens is that fixations dissolve. And that first major fixation, as I described earlier, is the fixation on a sense of specific, separate, mind-identified self. And it's a wondrous thing when you finally open that up into this unbound consciousness, pure being, a huge release. It's a sort of the primary fixation. And then there are other subtler fixations that remain and you can go the rest of your life without noticing them, which is fine. Of course, it's fine if you don't have any of these shifts actually, but there are more subtle fixations that it's not that they arise, they're already there, but they're uncovered. They're laid bare so you can actually address them. One way of addressing them is to remain or spend time in that unbound consciousness or that being space, that does soften a lot of polarities that keep pulling attention into the thought space, but it's probably not sufficient just in and of itself. I would generally recommend spending some time doing that, meditating that way. But when it's time to investigate the deeper identity structures, it can be helpful to also add certain types of inquiry not necessarily self-inquiry, perhaps, but self-inquiry can start to become less valuable, especially when you start to identify uh, with almost like a negative identity, like awareness. <laughs> it's kind of a trap, actually. And it's just what you said. You actually identify with that. And this is the sneakiness of the mind, the ego. It can kind of identify with anything. So you, what you have to start to do is look into the nature of identity itself of identifying, right? You can see there's no self. Like a lot of people get to this place where they're like, I can tell there's no self. I can tell there's no separate self anywhere. I can't find it. And I, I even instinctually know there's not really an individual self I'm going to find somewhere. And yet it's like, okay, well, what do I do now? Because selfing is still happening. I still react. I still get pissed off at things. I still get in my head. I still feel like there's some more to do, but I don't know what or where or how. So when you're in that space, just telling yourself I'm formless awareness all the time and there's nothing to do and there's no one to wake up. And that can be a mistake. Well, not a mistake, but a, you can be deluding yourself a little bit. And, and so that's a subtler fixation. And what I see as people 
wake up more and more deep in realization is it'll, it'll just happen. There'll be times when you, you want to bypass and there'll be times when you, you don't want to let go and you've come to a place that's so comfortable or so enjoyable and you're like, oh, this is what I am. I'm going to stay here. So what ends up happening then is when you investigate the nature of identity is you start to investigate the nature of fixation, but it's energetic. Well, it doesn't have to be energetic. Uh, I could say it's experiential. It's not cognitive because the cognitive mind kind of has no business here, really. It doesn't, it just, it can't touch this space. So, so you really have to start to really trust your intuition and your experiential insight in the moment. So teachers like Thich Nhat Hanh are great with this. He's always pointing to right now. It's how you take a step, how you drink the tea, how you take a breath. And it sounds so simple the way he talks about it. And it is simple, but it can be overlooked the depth at which he's actually pointing. And that's where practice has to go because the only thing that can really undo or dissolve that constant tendency of thought to reflect another thought, to form a sense of identity and self-reflect, and then go from there building a, any kind of identity, spiritual identity, personal identity, whatever, um, it is the actual itself, is reality itself, non, non-dual. So we start to investigate the formless nature of the actual world. So an analogy I'll make, and it, this always surprises people when it starts to happen, that they think they know what boundlessness is and formlessness. And they do, they do because you experience it up here, you experience it in consciousness. And it's wonderful. It feels great. It feels like an ocean of you know, bliss. Then when you start to actually see non-duality in the physical world, like things are literally not solid. Like the wall in front of you is not actually a wall in front of you. And, and it's undeniable. It's a very different kind of experiential insight. And when we turn our attention to what actually is, instead of what our reflective mind is telling us about what is, including beingness, that's when you start to experience what in Buddhism might be called shunyata, emptiness. It's not empty like awareness. It's not nothingness. It's empty of abiding nature. So it's also empty of distance. And when it's empty of distance, there's no sense of space. When there's no sense of space, you feel everything as the universe, as this body. Body, mind, universe, all one spectrum, one thing physically, not like an imagined thing. It's literally that way. So this is where you start to come in contact with very powerful forces. And with that, you can't bypass anything. You have to see where your identity structures are really holding you because you start to come up into contact with intense things, intense fears, fear of dissolution, like the the terror of not being, and then very personal things, uh, fear of abandonment that you th- may have visited 50 times and you still got to go back because there's something still holding there. Not that you're trying to dissolve a self. This is different. It's like um, fully inhabiting a self. It's very paradoxical because you can understand the doctrine of no self, but not realize true freedom from fixation means freedom from the identity of self, but also freedom from the tendency to avoid the experience of self. And so you have to fully inhabit that too. So you go in different directions. One is into investigation of the formless nature of reality itself, not consciousness necessarily, but actual reality, sounds, sensations, and in the visual field. And at the same time, a very personal inward journey to really find out where you've attached and you've attached by avoiding actually. So avoidance and attachment are intimately tied together. So that part of things does require some intention actually, and some intention to feel things you don't want to feel 
an intention to actually be, be uncomfortable, right? Because it's almost addictive to be in unbound consciousness, unbound being, and and that's fine. But there are times when presence is not manifesting as unbound consciousness, but it's manifesting as fear, as sadness, grief. You have to know that quality of presence as well and, and be willing to move through that spectrum. So that can take some inquiry. So I don't know if that's helpful, but that's what came. It's very helpful. And I think just the experience that I have a lot now in practice is in part from your encouragement, it's almost this very delicate kind of curiosity about every moment. Where is their fixation? What am I not seeing? And I don't know. I don't know the answer. That's the thing. It's like, I can only just inquire and kind of feel. And sometimes like I see something and there's, and it's then included in the experience, you know, it's included in awareness, but often I don't even know what I'm looking for. Like I know I'm looking from a perspective. I have a view. And so even including that in my inquiry and like what other subtle little things am I not seeing? And there's the feeling of like not even knowing how to look, but you do anyway. And it's very powerful and different than other kinds of practices. It's so uncompromising of what's being asked in a way. It's like you could never live up to what's being asked somehow. And yet you will continue in your own way to try. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you, you, totally. You can't live up to it, but you can surrender to it. I would call it vulner vulnerability. It is vulnerability. Immense vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Okay. I guess it's my turn for report. Okay. So this is my practice, you know, in the Dzogchen lineage. And I'm sure this is like many different practices. Like I know it, there's a lot of parallels with Zen. There's a lot of parallels with Samkhya, Hindu practices. And yeah, this is exactly it. What we would call trekcha or cutting through, kind of resting in or non-meditation even. And yeah, you know, the thing that I love about Dzogchen or any of these practices is that, like you said, it doesn't have anything to do with some guy from 2,500 years ago. Although, hey, if it makes you feel good to incorporate that into your practice, you know, some kind of bhakti kind of practice as well, include it, but it doesn't have to. And so there's this immediacy, which I really loved. And same as Jeff, there was, you know, many points in the meditation where your words were kind of, they weren't English words to me. <laughs> they weren't words at all. They were just this stream of something else that was hovering in experience. And so it was nice to have that kind of tether because as a daily practice, it's not guided or anything like that. And so whatever comes up can come up with gale force and it's just all an experience. There's something really beautiful about having this line of just this like tendril of words passing through it, like your guidance, which like Jeff said, you know, they're not really instructions. They're more descriptions to notice that it's happening for you as well. So there was this little guide rail or something that was really beautiful for me. And a lot of questions came up for me because it's this is such an intimate practice for me. And I'm curious how you deal with things that come up and how that might be different from the lineages that I'm familiar with. So for example, one of the things that I've experienced a gazillion times and asked my teachers about and that I help students through as well is this kind of wobbling, or sometimes I call it like an aperture, like the aperture of your attention. Sometimes when you're in this space, you know, is wide and it encompasses everything and you're able to be full wide. And then there's the aperture shuts and your pinpoint attention at something small. And the more that you go into this practice and do it and rinse and repeat, it's almost like that wobbling of wide and shut and wide and pinpoint focused happens more often because you're, you're kind of stretching it open, right? So you're going to the gym 
of attention <laughs> and, and stretching it open. And that can be really dysregulating for people in that period where there's this like fighting to keep open. You're fighting yourself to stay in a place and you're making it inauthentic in that moment that you're trying to make it mm-hmm. stay open. You know, So I'm wondering how you would guide someone or how you've done that, dealt with that yourself. Oh, I love that. Great question. I love precise questions. So the first thing I wanted to say is a little bit slightly off that subject, but not exactly. You both mentioned that this meditation wasn't a technique-based meditation. It was more of a direct pointing. And that is true. Uh, I, I didn't actually decide anything. <laughs> I, it's, it's like something mm-hmm. steps forward and just starts doing, it's not even talking. It's just the whole thing is just the environment's like doing what it does. So, Which is just, just a pause for saying that's key. Because that's talking about where this goes. This is about allowing yourself to be the environment going where it goes. And so in a that's sense, right. you're embodying that for us as part of the guidance. Yeah. And we're feeling that, you know. Yeah, and that's and that's how it works. The other thing I wanted to say, though, is the mind will always say, if it's this, it's not that. But it also doesn't mean no technique was given. It just wasn't given to the conscious mind in a way you can remember. So the experience of it is very much like a technique given to a deeper part of all of us that it can actually utilize, but it's more like a technique of the heart, like an attunement sort of. But specifically to your very good question, what I would say, and this doesn't come from a past of answering this question or anything like that. It's not like an experience thing. It just comes out of right now. But what I would say to that is when you're having that experience, the noticing of that experience, I would consider a couple of things. One is ask yourself, is it just a belief that it has to be one way or the other? like the narrow focus or wide focus, where am I getting the evidence that it can only be one of those ways at a a time? And if it's just a belief, a thought actually, that says, oh, I have to do something here. I have to figure out which way or it's dysregulating. Just recognize that's fine. It's fine that those thoughts are here. Now, is it actually possible experientially for those both to coexist? See if that's true. Just see if you can find that in experience. You might be surprised. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, that's one of Shenzhen's main invitations. He uses a lot, his language is sort of around expand, contract. And his thing is, can they both be here simultaneously? And when I've gone to those spaces, there's a real sense of feeling like I'm going to be torn apart. It's like they're both happening. And there's a sense in which I'm disappearing and emerging at the same time. My nervous system goes, wow, what is this? <laughs> and I can suddenly be in this real state of reaction to it. Where I find that that stabilizes that feeling of being pulled apart or having to make this decision about the way we're managing like our aperture of attention and so forth is really when non-duality really comes online. And that's because, again, this is all very paradoxical talk. It's very hard to talk about this, but the stability in a sense is in the instability. When you're starting to experience that sense of the expansiveness and the sort of focus and intimacy simultaneously, you could say you can experience that through the lens of consciousness, through the thought gate. And again, that's in my way of speaking or teaching, I guess, in the book is that's reflective in nature. Consciousness is a reflective apparatus. What it's actually trying to reflect, and it does the best it can, is non-duality. It's trying to reflect the literal boundless nature of reality itself. Oh, that's why it's happening. Oh. Does that make sense? <laughs> that, okay. Shit. That's why it's happening. Okay. Yep. So it's reflecting it, but... What's so cool about actual reality is the masculine and feminine, the disintegrative and integrative, and the ninth Oxfording picture points to this beautifully. I observe the forms of integration and disintegration. I'm ever blissful. 
in non-duality, you could say they're balanced, but they're not even two things. So integration and disintegration are literally the same thing. And it's this ecstatic union. It's so freaking wonderful. Mm -hmm. It's like you won the lottery, you know, again and again and again. And it's like, oh my God, it's right here. And there's literally nothing I have to do to even the sense of reflection isn't there. But what consciousness does with that is it tries to balance it and it tries to navigate it and manage it and so forth. And it never really can fully do that. But you can, again, learn from the non-dual world, like that experience, and then see that in reflective consciousness, oh, okay, it doesn't actually have to be one way or the other. Like it's a mental process that says one way or the other. It's a mental process that says there's some picking and choosing. And, you know, the Xin Xin Ming, affirming faith in mind, that addresses this very clearly. There's no need to pick and choose. You know, picking and choosing can happen as a thought. That's just what the mind does. It produces thoughts all day long. But the stickiness of it, the identity with it, the belief I'm going to get something out of that can go on for quite a while. But the more you release from that, the more free you feel in the consciousness or thought gate, as well as obviously in, in all the sense fields that are not separate. You're also pointing to a very common experience in medicine work. You know, I've done a lot of that kind of work over the years, and there can be often a moment when the energy is pouring in from this sudden opening of this aperture. It's so powerful. And yet you can see your own mind spasming, trying to manage it. Yeah. It's like trying to manage, yeah. manage, manage, like describe, describe, manage. It's like this little seizuring. And the only way through, really, if you want to not get totally ripped apart, which I often did get ripped apart, <laughs> but the only way through is to just surrender because you know you have to let go of that, in a sense, the sphincter of your mind. Which is, <laughs> but it's very, 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 very hard because the reflex of control is so intense and it's been around for so long. Yeah. And another strategy or approach is just really letting the body handle that and metabolize it. Like if you have to lay on the floor and flop around for a while, so be it. But the energetic forces that underlie all of this identity are very, very powerful. You know, in Buddhism, like the ninth fetter is restlessness. <laughs> like after all that, it's dropped away. You're stuck with this energetic restlessness that's very powerful. So learning to actually trust the body, trust the body movements, intuitive movements, you know, yoga, energy practices, but feeling the metabolism of these energies through the body becomes very important and very powerful and it will naturally occur. Yeah, I think you're pointing to something that happens for a lot of people and definitely on my path I struggled with, which is that, and I think it's a Western thing, but I think naturally humans do it because we're intelligent beings. But what kind of gets you on the path for most of us and carries you along it is the conceptual mind that feels like it's up here and it's splitting things up and it's understanding this, not that. And that is so useful. Like, you know, <laughs> that's how we survived as a species. That's how we learn as people. But at some point, it is just that, Jeff, like you were saying, like that seizing energy that is like, wait, I have to, I'm going to make sense of this, <laughs> you know, and in not being able to, that is the point where if you don't let go, you're going to go bonkers, right? And that is the point at which you have to sink into the body, into the heart. Like every tradition talks about it as like a heart knowing, an intuition, that some people call it faith, you know, whatever it is, it's this thing beyond the conceptual mind. And it's like, at that point, can you do it or not? Do you, do you have the courage to go into the body and be that or not? And that's the sticky point. You know, I think I've tried to help people pass it. I've tried to maintain being there, <laughs> you know. I'm, I love 
I love pairing wisdom and method together because, you know, as all of us are teachers, you're encountering different people all the time with completely different hangups and journeys. And every time I meet somebody who asks me a question for practice, I'm trying to point out what you're pointing to and then also give them a method to get over whatever their hangup is, right? And that hangup of getting past thinking that the conceptual mind is right, that it's the path. How do you break that? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, That's a million good dollar question, right? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, you know, having that first shift is a huge, like a, the conversation I can have with somebody after that is just different. It's much more intuitive. And I notice I can always lead them back to realizing, oh, that's just one more thought I've been hanging myself up on for a week straight now. But really the first approach I take with somebody always is just fully absorbing where they are, like just being right there with them and going, yes, everything's perfectly okay right here, just like this, with this thought, with this confusion, let's feel all of it. Let's see what's here. There's confusion, there's frustration. It's rooted in this perhaps, but you know, you can also see the thought aspect. You can feel the trauma and it, like just really just getting where they are and not approaching it from the standpoint of being a teacher or being someone who's going to help them because I they don't need help. They're they're walking, talking Buddha nature. Even if they're frustrated Buddha nature, they're Buddha nature. So I, I, I personally start, uh, and I'm stepping back to even say this right now, but it, it feels just, it feels intimate to me. It feels like I feel their pain with them fully and, it's, and, it, and it varies, but sometimes it's really, some people just have been so beaten up by life. They just need a hug. They need warmth. They just need someone to tell them they're okay. Like it's okay that all this suffering, like you, you had no freaking choice. Everything that's been done to you yeah. in your childhood, like you had no choice. You put together all the identities the best you could to survive. It makes total sense and it's totally lawful and it's perfect. You know, just all of this suffering that you're feeling and the self judgment, like taking off a layer of self judgment by saying you did the best you could for sure. And I couldn't have done better. No one could have done better because you were in your own circumstances and and just softening that sense of self doubt, mm. self denial, self abandonment. Some people just need that for a while and it's not really about insight practice necessarily. It's like a melting through that rigidity first. Yep. Yeah. I I, I relate to that too. There was a period where just for so long what I just needed was a lot of self-compassion because I just needed that, you know. And and the thing of, you know, with the mind is interesting is like intelligence is definitely rewarded in our society. Like it just is, right? If you're smart, it gets you into college, gets you jobs. Um, people who are clever are rewarded. Even people who are clever in unkind ways are rewarded, right? Like there's a, a value to people who can, you know, whip up on other people publicly like Donald Trump or something like that. You know, it's like there's a, a value to that, even though it's pretty nasty and sarcastic and whatever. It's valued by our culture. I mean, it just is. So, and that's kind of the darker side, but, you know, intelligence in general, it, it opens doors for you, gets gets you places and so forth. And so a lot of people, that's their survival mechanism. It definitely was for me. And so you don't want to try to directly discount it, but just acknowledge it. So let's look at where all these places where being smart has protected you in your life, you know, and acknowledge that and see and and then recognize that at some point, the reason that layer of protection had to be applied was because you, you weren't able to address the emotional stuff underneath when you were a child because you didn't have a safe environment to do that. And then when you start to, you go, oh, I see that, right? You don't have to dismantle the intelligence or whatever, the identity around intelligence, just start addressing the emotional stuff. And all of a sudden that softens where you're still intelligent, of course, like you, you still have a mind, a clever mind that's useful when it's useful, but you're not using it as a hiding place. You're not hiding back in your internal world and you can actually start to inhabit your emotion and then the body and so forth. So it stops being your singular tool and just becomes 
one of the things in your toolbox. Yeah. It's like the more fundamental layers of identity that you address, all the layers above it just correct themselves is what I find. Mm. Well, I want to ask you something about those fundamental layers and and just by maybe f backing up a bit and, you know, what we try to do in the podcast is explore all different kinds of practices and be a support for people to understand these practices. And and there's all kinds, you know, practices around clear communication, practices around the voice, different meditation practices, movement, and they may have different things that they target and effects they can have and ways they can make our, our relative lives, our lives out in the world, easier, more empowered, clear, certain healings can happen. There's all kinds of reasons and all, that you would explore all these different practices. And yet we also circle around again and again, like a drain pipe, <laughs> these uh, almost the the practice of practice, the direction of directions, this understanding that there's also this deeper orientation in life towards the things you're talking about, towards a way of being in a more unfiltered way. And some teachers point right to it and others just, it's more slower and developmental and they just, they're more implicit in it. And some, many don't talk about it at all. I guess here's, here's the question, you know, the mind hears that and goes, oh, there's a hierarchy. These practices are surface practices, but these are the deep practices. These are the ones that really matter. And now what I really like about something that you have said, Angelo, that I don't hear a lot of other non-dual teachers say is, yeah, you can do this, but you don't have to. You know, you might be called to it or you might not. I mean, so help me out with this because I imagine a lot of the listeners are probably, if the ones who've listened to this long, there's probably some that are quite <laughs> befuddled. Like, what is this? This is different than the normal thing I'm used to talking about or feeling, or does this mean that there's this whole thing I have to do now? And somehow, even though I'm happy in my life, now I'm incomplete and I got to do this other thing. I mean, how do you, yeah. you know, fr frame that up for us? Sure. Sure. Yeah. One way I've said it is that there are people who are waking up, but there's no one who's asleep. Buddha nature, reality, awake nature. It's very paradoxical. It works in magical ways. So the way to tune in, in my experience and opinion, the way to tune into what's most important for you is to trust yourself. Yeah. And so if you're listening to what I say and all of a sudden you're like, yes, that's what I, that's what I'm interested in. Great. That's awesome. If you're listening to what I say and you're like, that doesn't make sense. It sounds like blah, 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 blah. Then that's great too. That's, this isn't what you should pay attention to. Go pay attention to what really moves you, but pay attention to what your heart tells you to do. And if that's, I've always wanted to be a mother or a father. I've always wanted to start a family, have children. That's all I've ever really been interested in. That's perfect. That's an expression of Buddha nature or awake nature or unfiltered reality. Do, do it authentically, you know? So for me, one, litmus test for all this that I hopefully gets more to the heart of your question is start with being authentic. So I, I'm not anti-tradition and, and I, I know Buddhism is a wonderful tradition and so forth, but some parts of it I, I don't necessarily agree with. Like I'm reciting the Bodhisattva vows when you're just a beginner. I want to go out and liberate all beings. No, you don't. You don't. Be honest with yourself. You want to feel better. You want to stop suffering. You know, start with where you really are. Like, you know, whatever it is, if it's, I want to actually finally be loved by somebody. I want to I want to know who I am. Uh, I want to really find out why all this freaking suffering is happening around me and in me. And yet some part of me believes that there's some higher power, whatever. Start with where you really are, you know, and be willing to feel the doubt, right? That yes, I, I trust this somehow, but I have a lot of doubt and I have to acknowledge that. And if you start with authenticity, it will lead you to the next step and the next step and the next step. 
So what I point to with people all the time when I'm working one-on-one or whatever is I don't care where you are in any kind of spiritual spectrum or awakening or not. Like I don't really look at people that way on a one-on-one basis. I just say what makes the most sense in that moment, I think. Um, and it's wherever you are. And people fluctuate all the time, right? Like you may think you're past a certain thing and then it comes hugely into your life, like <laughs> a relationship time. issue. Yeah, totally. And you're like, okay, well, I, I, have, I can try to bypass this or I can actually just deal with it, you know, uh, honestly and authentically. So really, really, really for me, authenticity is you just got to, it's, and it's a muscle. You don't just decide to be authentic one day and then you're always authentic. It's like, you have to remind yourself and you have to actually inquire, well, what is authenticity? Where am I being inauthentic? You know, that person's always told me I was not being authentic. What do they mean by that? You know, whatever it is, whatever feedback you get from the outside or inside, be willing to be somewhat vulnerable and look into that and inquire what is really motivating me here. What do I really want? You know, do I really want to be a bodhisattva? Maybe you do. I don't know. But dig in and flex the muscle of authenticity and that will lead you down this road. And you may actually believe I'm not interested in awakening your spirituality. And then you have a very, very profound awakening later because the conditions just arise. I've met so many people that have woken up with very little or no spiritual knowledge. And sometimes it's kind of terrible to say this, but often they wake up deeper and faster than people who are spiritual seekers. Because they don't have any baggage around it. Yeah. There's not as much grasping, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's beginner's mind. Yeah. (laughs) The whole way. Yeah. So when reality wants to tap you on the shoulder, it's going to tap you on the shoulder. And so just start by being authentic. Um, And then secondary to that, the thing I would say is probably the most valuable thing you can do, whether it's inside spirituality or this process we're talking about or completely outside of it is emotion work. Mm. Wow. Well, this is so enjoyable and I would love to get you on again because I feel like we just, there's so much, be interesting to do a thing on emotions, but also a thing on beginning to work with those subtle fixations. I think a lot, well, probably a lot of people in like listening will be familiar with the kind of way of just sitting and being and being aware and being in that kind of boundless place. And where does one go from there? You know, if how to prevent that from becoming a kind of cul-de-sac and let it be part of the kind of generative, ever-changing exploration of your ever-deepening identity, I suppose. Because you've offered a few quite specific things in your book around that that I've found very helpful. And it'd be, it'd be good to zoom in on that a bit. Yeah, I'd be more than happy to. And can you just maybe share with us how, you know, if somebody wants to work with you, continue learning, where can they find you? Well, the, yeah, the book is on Amazon. It's called Awake. It's your turn. Uh, Easy to find. And uh, I also have a YouTube channel called Simply Always Awake and a website by that same name, .com. And then I think I have an app out there that's free and it's called Simply Awake. Yeah. So that's it. And can I just say that Jeff was like, well, is like the biggest fan of your book. <laughs> he made a WhatsApp group so that we would all, and he like invited us all in and was like, this is the book you have to get. <laughs> so it's like on the top of my two reads. Oh, But well, I thanks. wanted to come into this blind. Like I just wanted mm. to experience without reading first. So I do love it. it. It's just because it just feels like you're in a conversation with a friend. And uh, and yet there's quite clean precision around some of the steps. I think because of your medical mm-hmm. background or whatever it is, it's like, a, and there's a freshness because you're not, you don't have that baggage in a sense of like, even read a billion books on Buddhism and learned every little thing. And like, mm-hmm. which is in a way, it's like when you read all those books and, and in a sense, that's kind of like one of my problems is that I've been so exposed to so many of those as a, both a journalist and a, and a mm. reader, teacher and all that. 
it's like they end up giving you these all kinds of constraints in your thinking in a certain way. You know, a view can expand your thinking and expand your experience and a view can also constrain it in a way. Yeah. This is why I love to read books with the person who wrote it. Like if we're working together or they're teaching like a retreat or something and then I'm going through it because the conceptual mind reading it by itself will make all sorts of things of it. And like really just to meet the person and to sit in their vibe, you're like, oh, I get it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Awesome, my man. Thank you so much. This was a wonderful way to kick off my day. This was sweet. <laughs> yeah. It was nice meeting you and nice seeing you again. Thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning in to the Consciousness Explorers podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this episode, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. See you next week for a whole new adventure. 